I believe in this idea of selfish writing. Do it for yourself first, because if you do it for yourself first, it's likely that other people will find value in it too. So when I'm writing the profile or doing anything with the brand, I never think like, oh, I should write it for that specific type of reader. And I think that's a lot of the advice you often get is like, do this with the audience in mind. I actually believe it's the opposite. I do it with me in mind and people who are interested in the same things I am will naturally find their way to it. Hi, welcome to Unmatched, the podcast that gives you an exclusive behind-the-scenes access to industry leaders who fearlessly embrace change, pivot from their comfort zones, and smash their glass ceilings. So, Paulina, total fangirl moment right now. Welcome to Unmatched. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time, so thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Wonderful. So fun fact, I am a big follower of two newsletters and they're both written by a Pompliano. How can that be? <laughs> Honestly, I don't even know. Like, I, I think I'm the original one and then the others followed is the way I like to describe it. <laughs> Very good. Today is about you. So we won't go into it. Everyone can just Google who the other Pompliano is. But today's about you, and um, I have to just uh, do a little intro. You're a writer, you are a journalist, um, you are writing an amazing newsletter called The Profile, which I'll ask you about in a second to introduce. You are a mother, which we have also in common, and you are Eastern European, which again, you know, like we have that as well in common. So I'm very, very excited to unpack all those things that, um, you know, make you who you are. So let's just start with with um, sort of going into what the profile is. Can you tell us a little bit what that is and how you started that journey? Yes, the profile is has evolved into a media company that includes a newsletter where I study the world's most successful people. But that's not at all how it started. It never started with the thought that I would one day make money off of it. I never thought I would leave my full-time job at Fortune Magazine for it. I just thought that this was something I did on the side with family to, to talk to family and friends about, you know, interesting profiles that I had been reading that week. So in essence, the profile is a physical manifestation of how I learn, but it started in February of 2017 as something I wrote on the weekend or in the evenings when I had free time. And it was just seven to eight curated long form profiles of people and companies I found interesting. And I would send it to family and friends. And then we would talk about it. That's literally how it started. How, how did you get the idea of, of writing you know, these profiles of, of people. So you said because it's, it's sort of the way that you learn about things, but what made you go to that first person and say, okay, this person is interesting. I'm just going to write a profile on this person. How did that whole process start for you? Yeah. So for me, the, the actual learning from people started many, many years ago when I was still in school. And I really struggled in history class that because it required me to remember a lot of dates, a lot of names, a lot of historical uh, context. But the reason that it was difficult is because I was trying to memorize this in the form of just factual information, not in the form of here's a person, here's their life in the context of this historical moment. And 
you know, here are the main characters. It wasn't a story that I emotionally connected with. The second that I realized like, oh, wait, if I'm studying the French Revolution, I can look at it from the viewpoint of Marie Antoinette. And I would look at her life, understand why she became the symbol of excess, why people hated her so much, how she was a mother and her young son was forced to accuse her of these various crimes, how she walked to her death. Like all these things are emotional events that I could empathize with not not that I had ever gone through it but I could be like whoa like you know you really put yourself in their shoes and what I found is that emotion triggers memory so so the second that you have a visceral reaction to somebody's life or what they went through it's stored in a different part of the brain is the way I explain it to myself and you know it on an emotional level therefore you will not forget it So I did this all throughout school. I call it people-focused learning. And then when I moved to New York and I was kind of lost, I was in my early 20s, I had recently graduated from college. And I was like, I don't know, like, am I, what am I doing? Am I on the right path? I had all these like existential crisis questions in my head. So I found somebody, I happened to listen to a podcast that she did. And I was like, wow, her story sounds very similar to mine in that she was lost. She was searching for what she should do. And then she used her, she let her passion fuel what she went on to do. And that was Sarah Blakely, who um, founded Spanx, the company. For her, it was just, you know, failure after failure until she landed on something that she was like, I have a problem that I want to solve for myself. How do I solve it for others? And I started going down a really deep rabbit hole on her. And from there, I I just did that for myself. I didn't do that to like share my learnings with anybody. But then when I started the profile, I was like, obviously I'm attracted to people and their life trajectories. How can, and, and I learn a lot this way, how can I take my learnings and share it with everybody else? So when I started writing the profile dossier, which I publish every Wednesday, it's a deep dive into an individual person. I always keep that in mind. I'm like, what did I learn practically from this person and in how can I share these lessons with everybody else I mean very fittingly your podcast is called unmatched it's like how can you find those super 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 specific things that make you different from me different from Sarah Blakely and and show the world like this is exactly what makes them exceptional this is exactly what makes them unmatched like this is the differentiator in these people that I now in my new book called their hidden genius that's amazing. And, and that's exactly, that's also what I'm interested in a way in different people that have different journeys. And what is really interesting, and I want to take a step back before we go into the profile a bit deeper. You were a journalist, right? So I know that you always love writing, but then you decided to become a journalist and you didn't become just any type of journalist, but you were writing for Fortune magazine, which is one of the biggest magazines out there. So it's like, wow, that's a huge achievement already. Tell me a little bit about that journey how do you become a journalist at fortune magazine and also how was that time for you how formative were those years for you in your writing very (laughs) um and i think here like you'll be able to empathize with my story a lot because i'm sure you've experienced many of the same things being from another country when I was little growing up in Bulgaria. I mean, I remember this so clearly. It's still like a little bit of trauma there. (laughs) But whenever, 
whenever the like evening news would come on, everybody had to be quiet because my grandfather was watching the news. And if I said something or like wanted to, you know, play something, they were just like, what are you doing? Go outside. Like, I need to watch the news. So to me, the news was this like stupid, annoying thing that got in the way of me being a kid but then <laughs> but then um <laughs> it's really funny but sorry to I interrupt mean... you but it's really funny because in Romania yeah. that was exactly the same there were two things <laughs> the evening news and Dallas the tv show you could not oh, say yes. yeah those are like the yes. two big milestones and moments of the day is in like if you would open your mouth when Dallas was on it was like a big drama so that and the news it, it's it's so funny that it's so so similar did you also have the Baywatch? Like of when course. Baywatch was on, that of was on. Oh, it was like, yeah, that was huge. Can we watch? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how many huge. times can we watch Pamela Anderson running through the? Yeah, well, so many times the yeah. answer is many <laughs> <Exactly>. times. <laughs> so it went literally Pamela Anderson evening news, and so in between that, it's like get your questions in. Um, but but when I got to the U.S., I realized that I I don't know. I was just like innately curious and I was always asking questions like the joke in my family is like that I was like annoyingly asking questions to the point where people were like please stop but to me it's like that's how I discovered the world but then in high school I was very very introverted so we had to pick an elective to take so the options at my school were like chorus I couldn't sing acting I couldn't act like all these things like band I couldn't play an instrument and the other one was the newspaper so I was like I guess that's my only option so when I when I joined that it really like forced me to be Become a little bit extroverted or at least to tame my shyness in a way that you are doing a job this is for your grade you have to interview the principal or whatever so I had to kind of get over it and I realized that I liked asking questions and I loved writing and I liked research so it's like those three things put together that was perfect for me and that was the first time I actually like I felt like oh yeah I really really enjoy this that led me to majoring in journalism at college. After college, I went to CNN and USA Today briefly. I freelanced there. And then I worked at a media startup in New York. And then I got to Fortune. But when I got to Fortune magazine, like I was hired. I was young. So at the time, they weren't hiring reporters. They were hiring social media mentors. So I was like, you know, I went in posting on Fortune's Facebook, like I wasn't writing, but I knew, and I know you know this, as an immigrant, when you get an opportunity, even if it's like this small, you're like, just get me in there. I'm going to like, I'm going to weasel my way into doing exactly what I want. <laughs> so, I mean, quick, quick backstory. I lived in Spain for 14 years from moving from Romania. I moved to Madrid. And my first ever job out of out of college was at Walt Disney. And this is exactly the point that you're making. As a as an immigrant, seeing myself at Disney was so amazing. And it's almost like this pinch me moment that I'm like, should I maybe just like pay for me to be here? Like, how is it that they're paying me to be here? You know, it's that mentality of, you know, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome, I would say. You know, there's a lot of cultural baggage that you carry with you that, you know, like Eastern Europeans is 
carry a lot of that with them. So it's it's definitely, it must have been amazing for you as well to see yourself there with all these amazing people. Exactly those feelings I had on my first day at Fortune. I was like on top of the world because a lot of these people, I had watched documentaries with them. I had read books they had written. I mean, the reporter who broke the Enron story was like right there. I was like, this is unbelievable. Um, and it's serious journalism. It's exactly what I want to do. And, and you know, it, the imposter syndrome is really interesting. I definitely see it a lot with my parents because I think they were a little older when we moved here. I was still like eight years old. So I had a little bit of me that was molded by the U.S. You know, that like entitlement. No, I'm kidding. No, I never felt entitled. More like self-confidence, I would say. Which is self confidence, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like I, I really struggled with confidence for a long time, but I think for me, the way to overcome that and the way I overcame imposter syndrome, because I definitely had it, was I know I'm young, I know I'm inexperienced, but the, the first thing that I did when I got there was I made it a point to meet every single reporter and I said, you know, I'm the new social media manager. In order to better understand what you're covering and what you're writing about, and in order to best understand how to promote it on social media, I need to like follow you around a little bit, ask you some questions. So I and, and of course, like they were more than happy to teach me things. So I was like, wow, what a cool opportunity to learn. And then I can use some of these lessons uh, for myself. But like, it was just, I, I knew everybody underestimated me. And, and I think the best position you can have is being underestimated because, because you know yourself and you know you can over deliver because you will gain the right skills. So it was, it was incredible being there. And I guess the word for that time must have been hustle, hustle, hustle. <laughs> yeah, it was like exactly like what you said. I cannot believe they are paying me to be here. And not only that, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. Like this is my dream job with the dream people. I'm learning every day. It was, I mean, it was an incredible time. So let's go through that journey together because I think it's really fascinating that there's so many parallels and, you know, as, as you grow a bit older and as you go through life and you go through this, you know, very formative years, there's probably a point when you're like, okay, done that, been there, hustled, now what, right? And so what happens then when you decide, okay, I've had enough of this, I need to do something else and sort of go towards my own thing. Yeah. So an interesting thing happens <laughs> when, because I was in an interesting position when I was doing social media. I did that for about a year. And then I pitched an idea to Fortune about what if we start like a vertical called venture where we talk to early stage entrepreneurs, we cover small businesses, we do all this stuff that currently like Fortune had been very focused on the Fortune 500, which is these massive companies. But what if we, you know, the world is shifting towards tech and startups and venture capital. What if we cover a little bit of that? Did that for about a year. Then the writer of Term Sheet, Term Sheet is Fortune's daily deal-making newsletter that covers every single day, every deal that's being made, who's funding who, who's acquiring who, like all this stuff. So it was a very, very hefty 
and dense and burdensome newsletter. It would take hours to put together every morning. And the writer of it was leaving. So they asked me if I would be interested in writing it. And I was like, oh my God, like this, when I started Fortune, I barely understood the words in that newsletter. Now I would be writing it like what? But I was like, sure. I mean, you know, why not? I'll Google around if I have to. Like I I was like all in. So started writing that. And once I started writing that, I had been writing the profile for a few months when I said yes to the newsletter at Fortune. That meant that I was writing a newsletter every single day of the week except Sunday. (laughs) So it was a lot. But I enjoyed, I really enjoyed the profile and I really enjoyed term sheet because I was learning. And what happened was I saw this, like whenever I think I get an idea to do something and then I see it everywhere, I hear it everywhere, every podcast I listen to, I'm like, oh my God, there's that idea. Like the the universe is confirming it. It's called confirmation bias, but I took it as the universe confirming it. But it's a sign. It's a sign, exactly. I took everything as a sign, even though I'm sure there were plenty of signs pointing in the other direction. But what I thought was, I write about entrepreneurship, I talk to these founders every single day, but I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because I myself have never started anything, I've never started a business, I've never worked on something that could legitimately fail, I've always kind of had a safety net of a large media organization behind me. So just in my head, this was in January of 2020, so at this point I had been doing this for a while, I started thinking, what if, (laughs) what if I, what would the profile look like if I focused 100% of my effort on working on it without any other distractions, without anything else? And the answer to that question kept being like, yes, like I would do this and I would do that. I would interview this person. I would, like I had so many ideas and it kind of felt a little stifled that I wasn't able to do them. So then (laughs) this mental experiment turned into a cease, I call it the seesaw of misery. I would wake up being like, you know what? Today I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna leave Fortune, I'm gonna quit my job and I'm gonna go all in on the profile. And then I would go to sleep and be like, are you crazy? You worked so hard for this. Why would you ever give it up? And actually, there, there are a few people I can think of when I told them I was thinking about this, they were like, but why? I mean, you get health insurance, you get safety, you get, and then you realize that a lot of times your anxiety, your thoughts about something being safe are actually misplaced. It's not true. It's kind of an illusion. So I could have thought, oh my God, I'm so safe at Fortune. Why would I ever leave? But then you think like, if there's a financial downturn, I might get laid off. Even if I do my job perfectly, I still may lose my job. So it's like, it's not that it's so secure. It's that you're like kind of brainwashed yourself into thinking it's secure. And then with something like the profile or any venture that you may have, if you think about it, if you have multiple streams of revenue, if two of the five dry up, you still have three left. So it's like, basically it's the way you design it. But I I, I learned a lot of lessons into what is ac- what is safe and what is an illusion of safety. I'm just going to assume here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say the cultural bias probably might have, you know, sort of helped that thinking because 
if I think about myself, my upbringing in my country, it's all about, you know, you study hard, you go to school, you get a good job and you hang on for dear life because that's your safety net. And, and I think there is not enough financial education, at least in my country, where, you know, all these um, conversations should be had with young people that are starting out in their careers and explaining what is this topic of having different streams of income and what does it actually mean to be safe. Although safety, I personally think, doesn't really exist. So I'm guessing it must have been a little bit similar in your case as well, right? Yes. And, and not just, yes, that, but also, I never even thought about the concept of me starting a business. I always thought it was something other people did. And I was I was destined to live at a job because, live at a job, what did I just say? To live at a job, to work at a job forever, <laughs> but also maybe live at a job. But because I think all the people, all the adults in my life, I didn't know anybody who started a business. I always thought that the people that I covered at Fortune were just these like anomalies, these exceptional people who started something on their own and they were like throwing caution to the wind. And I was like, I am quite literally the opposite of that. So January 2020, I'm just going to say timing was a little off <laughs> to leave your job right ahead of a pandemic. But I'm also guessing that must have been also forming for the character and for resilience and building up that strength to keep, uh, you know, going. So tell me about that day that you wake up and you're like, now I'm self-employed and now I'm writing the profile full time. And, and that time after, how, how did those months um, go for you? I was stuck on the seesaw. So I, I made a pro and con list of, okay, if I leave, what's the pro for leaving Fortune and what's the con for leaving Fortune? And then on my con list, there were some absurd things on there. One of which was people will be disappointed in me. It's like literally not a single soul on this planet <laughs> sits at home at night no. sipping whiskey and being like, <laughs> man, oh. I'm really disappointed in Paulina. <laughs> literally no one does that. So once I like logically was able to look at that, I was like, okay, that's stupid. But then there were some not so absurd ones like what if you know i write about this stuff every 10 years or so there's a financial downturn or some sort of correction in the markets we are at that 10-year mark what if that happens and now i don't have a corporate job and i'm and, and that's exactly when i was like okay but if that was to happen i'd probably get laid off so that's that's not really that big of an issue either but then what i didn't have on my list is a global pandemic, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> which I think one. surprised us all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody had that on their list. So the problem was that, I mean, the timing was just perfect for me in that, thank God, I gave my notice on March. It was like the like March 1st or March 2nd. It was the very, because oh I wanted to give them three weeks. I was like, I'm going to give them three weeks so that that way the transition is smooth, whatever. So I gave them more notice. But then, I think it was like March, like mid-March, it was started kind of, I was in New York, so it was like, wait, what's going on? And then Fortune was like, okay, well, everybody works from home for this week until two weeks to flatten the curve or whatever. And I was like, is this serious? But then truly in my mind, I thought it would be two weeks and then things would be back to normal. Nobody foresaw any of this. Of course this. not, yeah. So yeah, so it was, it was insane, but it was 
I became singularly focused on making this thing work because I knew there was a lot going on. So one of the first things I did actually was what I know how to do, which is you're a reporter, report on what's happening. So I was walking in New York City and I saw every single business being shut down. I read their notices on the on the doors. And I was like, what if I interview some of these small business owners and just capture exactly what they're feeling right now? So I did that with seven of them. And I ran that as a series called the Faces of American Business. And it was just, I, I read it today and I'm like, oh my God, like everybody was paralyzed with fear, obviously. So that one, made me feel not alone. But two, I kept thinking, like, how lucky am I to work in an industry and to have a business that's not dependent on having a physical storefront or something like that? Like, I do everything on the internet and I can do it from anywhere in the world. So actually, for me, people were spending more time at home. They had more time to consume content. And a lot of them were willing to pay for high quality content after they had exhausted watching all the Love is Blind and Tiger. Remember Tiger King? We were yes, all watching this very nonsense. Much. And then very <laughs> much so. <laughs> worse than Baywatch. <laughs> yeah. So so after like they had done that, it was like, okay, well now what else can I feed my brain that's not that? And I actually I, I had I got a, a big influx of people who had never heard about the profile before during that time. It's very interesting because because obviously that was such a strange time for all of us, right? And and almost like the world had to come to a pause everywhere, which at the time, of course, we were all very scared of. But now in hindsight, we, I guess everyone thinks, well, we kind of benefited, you know, from being able to have that stillness. And, and I can totally understand why people started to to uh, read the profile. And I have to say that's about the time when I started to read the profile. So I can completely link to that idea because you didn't really know what to do. And it was a way, um, at least for me at the time, to, to sort of like connect with people that were familiar faces but that somebody was bringing that sort of knowledge about those people in a different way. So I, I want to dive in a, in a few of them because I, I'm very curious. I've selected four of them specifically. So I want to start with two that are very much on top of everyone's mind right now. So the first one is Elon Musk and the second one is Sam Altman. But I'll start with Elon Musk because I have to be really honest. I'm so interested and drawn by his personality. I find him very weird, but at the same time, I think he's so interesting because he's a builder, because he really uh, looks into how to change the society for the better, how to come up with something that didn't exist before. And, you know, he's putting it out there for the masses. It's like, I can only imagine that he's like one of these big, big, big thinkers that probably don't see any limitation to anything um, that they can do. So mm -hmm. I I'm really curious, what were the things that you learned from you know, profiling him? I mean, there are so many things. Um, actually, I'm glad you're asking me about him because people often ask me if there's one person you could interview, who would it be? And to me, it's him. But it's not him because... the. The way that I approach people when I study them is like there's like surface level Elon and then there's like deep Elon, right? Everybody knows the surface level facts. He's an immigrant. He came. He built. He, he built these life-changing companies. His brain just works in a way that none of us will understand. He study, He can like study rocket science and actually understand it. Like it's, it's wild. But to me, actually, the more interesting thing about Elon is that most or a lot of people don't know is his 
personal life and how what happened there kind of shifted the way he thinks or I have a kind of a theory but I read this in his book in the biography of Elon by Ashley Vance it said that it and it was a very brief mention but I've thought about this all the time since every time somebody says something about Elon I always think about that he was he was an entrepreneur right like he was very good he came here he was working his butt off whatever but he didn't have this same drive that he has now and I was like that's an interesting change because typically as people get older, their level of ambition wanes instead of increases. So his is the opposite. When he was married to his first wife, their first child actually died of SIDS, a sudden infant death syndrome, and kind of briefly mentioned that like something in Elon kind of turned. And I do think that there's some sort of relation between him losing a child, and especially now as a parent, like I cannot imagine that, but losing a child and wanting to save the world. Like I I definitely see that there, wanting to save humanity, wanting people to live on forever. There's something there and he never gets asked about this ever. At least I haven't seen interviews about it. But of course, it's like a personal thing. Maybe he doesn't want to talk about it. But I think it would benefit all of us in understanding the motivations underneath everything that he's doing versus just judging him based on what he's doing here. I, I think there's something there, to be honest, because obviously he, he also went on and built this, you know, private school for his kids and some other kids. And I know that your friend and someone that I'm hoping to get on the podcast soon, Anna, is part of that, of Synthesis. And I think that's also something that he's building. And it's not just for him and, and his kids, but for other kids as well. And then that concept is taking off into something much bigger. So it's another way of looking at education, which honestly, who does that? Nobody does that, right? So it really goes beyond than just, I want to create a new company. Right, right. It, it, yeah, I think at this point, I think we can all agree that it's not about the money for him. <laughs> I think he has plenty and more than enough. Um, so it's like, it's got to be something else. And I think it's like finding that something else for me, that makes people really interesting. So what do you think that makes him unmatched? He, okay, I think his hidden genius is that most people, so for example, when he looks at people, he kind of, he sees computers, he sees your hardware and he sees your software. Hardware meaning that the the brain you're born with, like the brain, the whatever, the natural talents that you have, maybe something at birth that gives you an advantage. But the software are your beliefs and the things you're learning on a day-to-day basis and the thing that keeps the hardware running optimally. So in other words, if you don't update your software, if you don't update your beliefs every so often, you will be running on an old operating system or on like outdated beliefs. You're just, you're not with it. (laughs) And it's very hard to learn new things and evolve as a human if you're just holding on to those rigid beliefs you had when you were 10. And a lot of us don't progress past that in many cases. So he's always, I think he tweeted this recently. He said, who wrote the software running in your head? Because ideas and the beliefs we get sometimes are from parents that these are just outdated beliefs we just take for granted. We don't question. And then you're 35 years old and you're like, 
why do I still believe that I'm not good enough to be at this company or whatever? So I think that his kind of really interesting, exceptional thing is that he's constantly updating those beliefs and constantly, it's very easy for him, I think, based on what we've seen recently, to let go of things that didn't work and replace them with something else. Which I think is an amazing skill, but because a lot of people just hang on, you know, maybe due to ego or or whatever set of beliefs on things that actually don't work. So I guess it's a great skill to have. Sam Altman, obviously founder of OpenAI, is someone that is on everybody's minds these days. I have to say I'm fascinated by him and I am scared as shit sometimes when I hear him talk. I listen to him quite a lot on different podcasts and interviews. And obviously, I I play a lot with ChatGPT and in DALI and, you know, all these little toys that are available right now. And every time that I listen to him speak, I'm really amazed. And I thought it was very funny in your profile the other day that um, you were referring to this thing where somebody mentioned to him that he never uses the restroom and he answered with something like, well, it's because I, I want you to think that I am the AI or something like that. So I'm like, oh shit, like who would say that? <laughs> maybe he is the AI. <laughs> maybe, so, maybe he's just typing really fast and he's chat GPT. <laughs> he's the actual chat GPT in his mind. So what do you think about him? Okay, so I also find him fascinating. I haven't done a proper, proper deep dive on him. So this is very much from the things I've read recently. What's very unusual is that the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times both ran a deep profile on him this weekend. This just shows like how much he is on everybody's mind and people are just like, what is going on? I find him actually weirdly comforting. (laughs) I don't know why. I think it's because like if I had to think who should be at the helm of OpenAI, it's probably somebody like him who's more methodical. I think he's a very clear thinker. You know, he, he he's not very intimidating. I don't want somebody who's like, we're going to take over the world and like super aggressive. Like that would terrify me more than this does. Because I think that he sees both sides. He knows that it could be very dangerous. And he's saying, I want to be methodical with my release and my rollout of this so that we can learn from it and we can iterate, but like in a smart way, not just like blast it out into the world and let's see what happens. He's been a very, very methodical about his release. Mm, and very open with this idea of building in public so that yes. people can provide feedback in time and hopefully things don't get out of hand. Still, he's, he's, he's part of a very select group of people. And in the interview that I I listened to the other day, you know, the interviewer was asking, you know, you one day you will be in a very small room with a very um, select group of people making huge decisions on humanity. How do you feel about that? And, and he seemed very chill about it, very relaxed. Which <laughs> That's why I like him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm going to trust you on that. Let's see, let's see how it goes. <laughs> if anything happens, I'll call you, Paulina, and say, oh, you, my God, oh you God. told me to I'll trust like, him. I'll be like, listen... <laughs> It's like the world is ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Sarah Blakely, and it's really funny because she's really one of the, um, I, I don't want to say female entrepreneurs, just entrepreneurs 
that I deeply respect and admire just because of her life journey and the things that she stands for. She's the founder, inventor of Spanx, and she has an amazing journey that I, I really recommend everyone to, to go read the profile about her and also to, to deep dive um, and Google her because it's it's really worth it. What is it that you like most about her? Because I'll say the thing that I always go to is this one story that she tells about her father, you know, being around the dinner table and herself and the brothers, you know, they're having dinner and the dad keeps asking them, what did you fail at today? Which for someone who's coming from Eastern Europe, that was really impactful because I've never had a conversation about failing in my life. It's actually the opposite. I was told not to fail. I was instructed not to fail. I was really put on this path of you need to be perfect and you need to over deliver you need to be great at everything you know including singing which i'm like terrible at and so like to hear someone that says their parents encourage her to actually fail it seemed amazing to me what's what's your opinion on her totally and and by the way if anybody from eastern europe is listening right now i i need an answer to this because i don't like it's exactly what you said you said basically you're encouraged to succeed at everything, at a lot of things. But then, like, once you actually succeed, you can't brag about it. You have to be very humble about it. You have to kind of pretend you didn't even succeed. Yes. It's, like such, it's like a paradox. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? I don't know. Um, well, yeah, I mean, no. I'll tell you a fun thing. I don't know if this happens in Bulgaria, but this is terrible in my country. You know, like, when you do something amazing, you know, the, the thing that people just bring you down to, like, level earth apparently is the thing that they tell you is like yes if if anyone can do it you can do it too as in you're no special than other people right you can do it. right <laughs> if, if just the other person did it you can do it too as in like i don't know like confidence is not something that we built <laughs> no no exactly it's such a weird thing i've never actually thought about it in like deep thought but yeah confidence is just yeah anyway but that's a whole other podcast we could do but i agree with you in about the the failing thing because it's such a revolutionary thing to hear maybe it's not to most other people but to us definitely but basically at the end of the day sarah and her brother would sit at the table and her dad would be there and he would say let's go around the table and everybody share what you failed at that day and she says that he would be genuinely disappointed if she didn't have like a really like juicy failure to share. If she said something small, he'd be like, wow, that means you really didn't try today. So she started, it, it's, it's kind of a mental shift that he was trying to equate failure as not trying hard enough. And so if you try hard enough and you take a big risk, Yes, the failure might be big, but like the payoff could be so much bigger. And I, I think she just started being like, okay, well, if this thing doesn't work, I'll just try the other thing. Like it, that was so obvious to her, which is why when she originally wanted to be a lawyer, but then she failed the LSAT, which is the, the test you have to take to become a lawyer uh, or to go to law school. And then she was like auditioning 
to be goofy at Disney World, but she was too short for the costume. She couldn't even get that. And then she ended up selling fax machines door to door. And she wasn't very good at that job either. And it's like, how many times can you do that and not completely lose hope? And I think because she had that framework in her mind, she was like, I'm just going to keep doing it until what I'm doing feels right. And I'm excited about it. And I think that's a great framework. And I've, I have to say, I have two small boys, two small kids, and I'm totally adopting it when they're a bit older. Not, I think now would be a bit premature, but definitely I'm going to adopt that because I find it to be so, so, so useful. The last profile that I wanted to chat with you about is Brandon Stanton. He's actually one of my creative, like best favorite creative projects out there. He Humans of New York. I always follow him since many years now. And I'm a little bit sad because he promotes a different headwear brand than mine, but it's okay. I will forgive him for that. But I love the way that he's able to portray the people of New York with such grace, with such level of of taste that you know there's other accounts that look at people from New York and it in my opinion it gets a little <laughs> I won't say which one. But I think you know which one I'm talking about. I know exactly which one you're talking about. <laughs> and it's not the same level, you know? And I'm curious because I know that you actually interviewed him. So I'm very curious to know how you um, found him and what you thought made him special. We went to the same university, but he was a few years older than me. And then in college, I was the editor of the college newspaper. So one day we get an email from Brandon and it was like, hey guys, <laughs> I went to the University of Georgia and I now have this like Humans of New York thing on Facebook and it has like 10,000 followers. And I was like, I mean, is that a lot? Like he was like, it's 10,000 followers. And at the time, you're like, I mean, I guess, like, that's interesting. He's an alum, whatever. We wrote an article. And then I checked it out. Like, I actually went and looked at it. And I was like, oh, my God. It, it's like, it's that moment when you feel like this deep, deep envy and jealousy of someone. And I found that that probably means that's what you should be doing. Because that's what you want to be doing. So you're jealous of this other person who's doing it. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, he gets to wake up, go photograph people, and have conversations with them. That's like, that's like a dream. So... I had been trying to interview Brandon for 10 years, I think it was. <laughs> yeah, literally 10 years, 2010 to 2020. And then in 2020, I DM'd him on Twitter and I said, hey, like you could, you know, sometimes how you can see all the other times you've messaged them. That, that was me, shamelessly. And I was like, listen, <laughs> I have just published a profile dossier on you. Check it out. I would really love to interview you about it too, like about your work. He had never done like a proper media interview at that point. And so, you know, I wasn't getting my hopes high, but then he was like, this is good, let's do it. And I was like, you're, you're kidding. <laughs> so that happened recently after I had left Fortune. And so I interviewed him and I had so many questions that in the actual interview, you can see me just like getting antsy because I was like, I have so many questions left. Oh my God, we've only gone through four. But to me, he's fascinating because he's such a good storyteller and he has his hidden genius is just capturing the essence of a person and showcasing their humanity in a way that you said is really, really hard to do. I've empathized with people addicted to meth, to people who have are on their seventh divorce. Like somehow he makes you be like, you know what? If it was me in that situation, I might've made some of the same choices that person's made. So that 
is the biggest takeaway for me is like, I think about this on a daily basis. He said that we empathize more with each other's struggles than we do our successes because everybody's gone through something and it's just like you understand pain and can kind of empathize more with that than somebody being like, I'm running for president. It's like, I know nothing about that. When you're going in as a storyteller, if you can kind of pinpoint the certain struggles in a person's life, and connect with them on that, That's those are the best conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of matches this shifts in society where in the 60s, everything had to look perfect. And now it's all about the imperfection, right? It's all about oversharing and and just sharing, you know, what, what wasn't great and what can help others, you know, succeed through your own journey as well, which I think it's really cool. Now I want to profile you, Paulina, because... By the way, did you ever profile yourself? I would never. Not yet. Okay, maybe. <laughs> never know, never say never. It's really interesting because your story is also very interesting. So you you mentioned you are originally from Bulgaria. You emigrated to the U.S. when you were eight with your parents. Tell me a little bit about that, you know, that journey, because that must have been such a big shock. I mean, I emigrated when I was 18. It was a big shock. But at eight... It must have been so, so, so difficult. It was, yeah, I, I try to like remember what I was feeling at the time because now looking at it with adult eyes, I'm like, oh, okay, that's why I thought that. But like at the time, like you said, it's complete shock. So in 1999, my parents won the green card lottery. So we were like, we're going to America. That was my dad's biggest dream on the planet. And by the way, the winning the the green card lottery is like a tiny, I think it's like a one quarter of 1% chance that you win it and actually get to go. But not only that, the green card was delivered to the random person who lived in our apartment building. So if they hadn't given it to us, um, I mean, we, I wouldn't be here today. But it, it, it's pretty crazy just how everything happened. And then we get to the US, we're in Atlanta, Georgia. The reason we're in Atlanta is because my grandfather's cousin's friend knew somebody that could meet us at the airport and help my parents get jobs, uh, which he did not do. But anyway, that's a story for another it's time. It's always the story. They overpromise and then nothing happens. And then you deal with the happens. reality of, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I think once you've gone through it, you understand that there's a lot of like money, you know, I'll make sure that they arrive, uh, whatever. But anyway, so, so it was, it was really, really hard. The hardest part for me, I think, was that, you know, forget about not speaking the language. It's just like you're thrown into school and you're trying to understand this whole like whirlwind of whatever's happening. But also like other kids are not adults in which they could be like, oh, I understand that you are from another country. That is why you're so weird. No, kids are like, who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm not sitting with you at lunch. Like, you're weird. So that was that was kind of my experience. And then I think for me, I, I don't talk about this a lot, but I really believe that beyond this is how I learn, I learn through people's stories, I do think that that period of time made me hyper aware of people's body language, how they talked, what they emphasized. Like I became a really, really good observer of people. And I think 
that's what's helped me today kind of um, once I meet you I have a pretty good idea of how you like function through the world and I think that that's not something everybody has but it's helped me because a lot of times I'm able to watch videos or listen to podcasts or read profiles of people and get to their essence much quicker than most people. Most people would need to meet them in person to know. Like through watching videos, I can pretty quickly pick up on things that others may not pick up on. There's one specific story that I would like you to to share because I empathize with that so much. And it's the idea of being in competition with yourself, which I don't know if a lot of people really understand what that is about. It's it's obviously building the resilience that's sort of like this journey that you have behind the cultural biases and everything that sort of takes you to where you are today sort of brings you to it. But then there's also this idea that, you know, like coming from Eastern Europe, you might not be good enough. You're placed in a different country where people are just better because they're just from that country and we're not from that country. So we're not, probably we're not good enough. And it, it sort of develops this idea of you need to get better and better and better. But the funny thing is that you're never in competition with anyone else, but it's really with yourself. Talk to us a little bit about that because I'd love to hear your, your insight there. Yeah, so I have a theory that everybody's greatest insecurity probably kind of around the time they were little that has the potential to become your greatest strength and I think for me when I was in Bulgaria I was very very social I was a very confident kid the second that I got here I mean all that was kind of shattered and I was like I don't I, I cannot communicate. And I think that that was the biggest thing that was taken from me that I felt really sad about was I cannot communicate with people. I can't write. I can't read. I loved reading. And it was a moment of exactly what you said. Like, people have an advantage over me simply because they were born knowing this language. But... I know I can be better. I, I still remember going home with books and opening the book, opening the dictionary and going like word by word until I understood what the book was about. Very few kids would do that, but I did it because I was like, I need, <laughs> like, I need for myself to know that I can do this. Not for anybody else. Like I, for me, for my self-confidence need to know that I can do this and like surpass what my expectations. And I think like in doing that, you end up getting better at others at whatever thing you pursue only because you're trying to live up to an expectation of yourself that you you have that's high. Not that other people have it, you have it. And I think like, I don't know if it's an immigrant thing, but it's just this like innate thing where, or like I'll hear an offhand comment somebody will make and I'm like, how did they know that? Like, I want to know that. And then I start learning, learning, learning until I realize like, oh my God, I've surpassed that person. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. And I'm, I mean, for me, it, it kind of like goes a little bit more into an extreme, I think. So there's a point where you're saying, okay, there's a healthy balance of how further you can go with this, you know, because I've also been, you know, learning about this 80-20 rule where, okay, you can give 120%, but it's still 80% that's what matters. So do you actually need to go over the top and, you know, like put all that effort and that time? Sometimes you do, you know, sometimes it, it pays off and sometimes you don't. And I think that my personal journey has been in in figuring out when it's worth it to give it all and to over deliver versus when maybe just 80% is enough just to maintain your 
your your balance and your mental health, you know? Yeah, or like fine-tuning that 80% so you don't have to like go off the deep end, but like how can I make this more efficient than just gas all day? <laughs> Absolutely, because it's very tiring. So <laughs> I think you will know. Exactly. So they say plant a tree have a baby and write a book and Paulina checked all those boxes. Sorry, to be fair, the tree that I planted, I am not entirely sure if it's still alive. <laughs> so it we doesn't need to matter, check on you the tree, planted it. <laughs> but I planted it. I planted it. <laughs> That's what's important. I won't talk about all the plants that I plant and then they're not surviving. So the important thing is the act of planting. I want to talk about your book a little bit because Hidden Genius, I, I find the title also to be genius, is is really a compilation of all those different profiles, right? That you've written throughout the years and and sort of like even synthesizing it a little bit more and summarizing all those deep learnings that you've taken from all those people. And I'm just wondering, how, how did that book come to you? How did you decide to write it? And what's, what's the message that you hope people will take out of it? Yeah, it literally came to me uh, because I wasn't seeking it out. I wasn't thinking that I would be writing a book. Uh, but I had published a deep dive on the profile and I checked my Twitter messages and I had a message from an editor at a publishing house who said, you know, I really like this. If your thoughts ever turn to writing a book, he, he has a British accent, so that's how I imagine him saying it, into writing a book, like, let us know. So I was like, I mean, my thoughts will literally never turn to writing a book, but it, it could be an interesting, like, I'm just curious about the process because uh, I had never worked with a publisher before. So I asked him to do a call, and this was the first, like, work thing that I did since having my daughter, which was, this was three months in. She was born in November. This was in February. And did the call with him and I was asking him all sorts of questions like how do you guys you know what goes into it whatever but just purely out of curiosity so then he was like okay but like what would you write a book about and I was like oh you know I don't know and it was just kind of I wasn't serious but then he was like okay I like that idea I said something about you know I've, I've read so many profiles over the years like I could synthesize some of the lessons I've learned from them he was like okay I like that can you just send me a one paragraph summary of what it would what it would be about so I did that then he was like okay uh we like that can you send us a one-page book brief on like you know your name bio like basic things I was like sure I got 20 minutes I wrote it really fast sent it to him he was like okay so now like can you <laughs> can you write some like a table of contents like what would chapters would be in your book so it was very very piecemeal and like piece by piece and next thing you know I was writing like a sample chapter and then I don't know about you but like once I commit to something once I decide I'm gonna commit to something I'm just all in so I was like well okay if I started it then I gotta finish it <laughs> but but it truly did become something that I did for myself because when you're a new parent there's so much of you that this child needs and it's you do very, very few things for yourself. So before I had the baby, my friend said, just make sure you take 15 minutes a day and do something that's only for you. And I think what she meant was like scroll through Instagram. But what I took it as, I was like, I could write a book at night. Of course. <laughs> uh, right. So that's that's how it happened. What is the one message you want people to take out of the book? Yeah, so the, the biggest message I think that I want people to take away is that every single person on this planet has some sort of unique point of view, piece of wisdom, 
like mental framework, the way you see the world that only you have because nobody's had the same experiences that you've had. So the reason it's called hidden genius is because we all have this. It's just many of us have not discovered what it is yet. I've included all sorts of people that most of society wouldn't consider traditionally successful or a traditional genius. I think when you hear the word genius, at least I imagine Albert Einstein, like Thomas Edison, like those types of people. But I'm talking about the Sarah Blakely's, you know, the Anthony Ray Hinton, he was wrongfully imprisoned on death row for 30 years. Like, these are people that you don't traditionally think of like, oh, I wonder what they have to say. But actually, every single person has this hidden genius. And if you find the right path to express it, we can all discover it. And and I love that because there's there are so many parallels to Unmatched, you know, and, and to what I think. And I think my my sort of journey to Unmatched was more on this basis of trying to rebuild self-confidence, right? Because for me, it was more about this hidden voice, the fact that, you know, because of cultural biases, you know, you're not really allowed to tell your opinion so much and you sort of like need to keep it for yourself. You're not supposed to share with the world and, you know. So so sort of like the self-confidence is somewhere not there for you and, you start overthinking, that's also part of it. And you're like, oh, what am I good at? I don't even know. And so the journey to me to become unmatched is is really about what you're saying, you know, figuring out that everyone has something special. Um, and actually, I think that it's something that should be taught to kids early on and to young um, students and young professionals to understand that you're you throughout your life. And nothing is going to change that, you know, it's it's whoever you become one day and whatever title you get to have in whichever company is not going to ever define you because who you are, you're going to carry throughout your life. So the sooner you discover who you are, the better it will be to carry you through, you know, your life, your career and so on. Um, so I really love um, Hidden Genius. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to read about that book and to sort of like get all those uh, insights from you. And I guess one last question on the book is, have you ever thought of it being sort of a legacy? You know, I mean, I'm a parent as well now, and I think about this a lot. And I think, you know, I worry about what I'm leaving behind much more than I was worrying in my 20s. I think in my 20s, I didn't really care. But as you grow older and as you have kids, you're thinking, okay, I mean, what am I put on this earth to do? What I'm supposed to, you know, actually do while I'm here and who am I supposed to help? I'm just wondering if there's a little bit of that into your sort of your hidden genius. Yes, I never thought about it as being like a legacy thing, but I did think about, so the book is dedicated to my daughter. And then I was thinking about it the other day when we were recording the audiobook. I was like, how weird that her grandkids would one day be like, yo, chat GPT, can you play? <laughs> can you play that recording of my great great grandmother again? And it's like, my voice now, <laughs> my voice now will be alive, I guess, in hundreds of years. It's just so crazy to think because, like, for example, my grandfather wrote a lot of, like, poetry, and I recently, like, compiled all his poems into, like, a physical book for my dad. But I was like, man, how cool it would be if I could hear his voice narrating these things, you know? So I think, like, I think about it that way, but I definitely think that there's, like, an element of, I hope that, 
my children read this book and are like, what can I learn from this? And how can I discover my hidden genius like much sooner than maybe me or anybody else? And also, I, I was curious to ask you because, you know, the profile now is, is sort of a, a brand on its own, right? So I think that you're diversifying, you know, things that you're doing under this umbrella. So now I'm going to take it more onto my field of marketing and, and, and branding. How do you look at the profile today as a brand? And what is your vision for it long, long term? Yeah, so my vision for it is just, I want the profile to be a destination for where you can study the most interesting people in the world. So when you have a question about Elon Musk or Sarah Blakely, oh, I wonder where I should go to learn about them. It's the profile. And Everything that I do, it's with that in mind. And I think the way that I think about it as a brand is just an extension of me. And the the things that I find interesting, I, I believe in this idea of selfish writing or selfish anything, whatever you may be doing. Do it for yourself first, because if you do it for yourself first, it's likely that other people will find value in it too. So when I'm writing the profile or doing anything with the brand, I never think like, oh, I should write it for that specific type of reader. And I think that's a lot of the advice you often get is like, do this with the audience in mind. I actually believe it's the opposite. I do it with me in mind and people who are interested in the same things I am will naturally find their way to it. What kind of people do you feel are the readers of, of the profile? Have you defined it at this point? I look at the quantitative and the qualitative aspects of it. So I have Google Analytics. I see where people are, what people are reading, where they're clicking, etc. But I also do a qualitative survey once a year that kind of tells me more about the reader in qualitative terms. What I've come to realize is that it's bas- it's more of a psychographic than like a geographical or demographical anything, it's more of I'm curious, I'm introspective, and I want to get better in some way. Therefore, I want to learn from these people. So honestly, like I have regular conversations with a someone in college and then this 85-year-old man who reads the profile. So it's like very hard to say the exact type of person, but it's very much like someone on a journey to growth who is very, very curious. And to link to that, what is your journey of growth? Because you've done so many things and you've achieved a lot of the dreams that you had. Um, and now also being a business owner, what, what's the next thing for you? You know, I've never said this before, but I really, really do think that I want to do what Oprah did with our parents' generation. I want to do with our generation. And it's it's the more of like connecting with people on a human level and just like trying to extract what makes them them, what makes them unique, what is their hidden genius. And I think there's so much room for something like that. It's so interesting because like, I guess to a lot of people, it would look like like, oh, she's gotten everything checked off. But to me, it's like, right now, I finally feel like I'm just getting started. I was gonna say the same It's you're just getting started. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure of that. And so just to wrap it up, what do you think makes Polina unmatched? What do you think is your hidden genius? Okay, so this is really interesting because I don't know if you remember, but the way that you introduced me in the very beginning of the episode is exactly what makes me unmatched. And I think that's your potentially hidden genius is like, you're very, very good. I'm surprised you said that you were working on confidence because 
I feel like you're incredibly confident. And when you were introducing me, you didn't introduce me as Paulina, founder of the profile, which is what most people do. You introduced me as like a number of different things, entrepreneur, writer, author, mom. So I think what makes me unmatched is exactly that. I don't subscribe to one single identity. And I think Maybe that bothers some people, but I think that it's actually, for me, it's the best way to to grow is that I'm never like attached to only being a mom or only being a writer. That's not how I see myself. I see myself in like a prism of there's all these different parts to me. And to you, I may be a certain type of person. To somebody else, they may see me in a different light. But that's like the beauty of life is like, you're constantly changing, constantly evolving, and you don't have to just choose one. I love that because I 1000% agree with that. It was such a pleasure. One of the interviews that I was looking forward to have. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was lovely to chat to you, to learn from you. And I'm looking forward to Hidden Genius. Thank you so much. I, I had a blast. Me too. Thank you, Paulina. Thank you for tuning into Unmatched. Remember, building an unmatched brand is not just about success. It's not about popularity. It's about creating something truly remarkable that reflects who you are and what you stand for. So keep pushing yourself to go beyond what you think is possible. Keep taking risks, challenging yourself, and never settle for standard. And if you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Until next time, keep being unmatched.